Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock. Hello, everybody. Welcome to JS Party. I'm Tim Smith. Today, we have a special show for you. We're recording JS Party live at JSConf in Carlsbad, California. Thanks to Derek and the organizers of JSConf for letting us bring the party to this awesome conference. It was a blast. A special thanks to Gage, a free and open source test automation framework from ThoughtWorks for sponsoring JSConf on our behalf to sponsor our travel fund and get us to the conference. Check them out at gage.org. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Hello, JSConf. How y'all doing? All right, so we are your live JS Party. Now, JavaScript JS Party is a weekly podcast. We do a party about JavaScript and the web every week. And we're typically doing that live on Thursdays where folks are chiming in on a Slack channel. This week, we're going to do it live right here, right now. So y'all better be our Slack channel. <laughs> and be chiming in. So um, shall we sit down a little bit? I'll introduce. Myself and the panelists, I'm K-Ball. I will be your MC today. I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Suze Hinton. And I'm Faras Abukadijay. And we are going to be talking today. We've got two topics that we want to cover for you. So the first one we're going to do uh, is something that as soon as I knew I had Susan Faras on the panel, I wanted to do. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm calling JavaScript Connections. Um, and the idea is there's so many crazy, awesome, amazing things going on in the JavaScript world right now. And sometimes it feels like we're all off in our own silos. You know, the, the stuff, folks doing uh, robotics with Johnny Five are barely talking to the folks over here doing, you know, React and Vue and all this other stuff. So what I want to do is pull the audience for some really cool, whether it's library, API, framework, something that you're using, We'll get two or three, and then the panelists are going to live come up with a, an interesting combination that we can do with that. Um, so let's start out. Uh, who's doing something really cool and crazy wacko with JavaScript right now? Oh, come on. <laughs> Nobody. Silence. Oh, I can... All right, we got one. Yes. VR. VR. So we have VR with JavaScript. That will be our first thing. So we're going to pull in VR. Anyone else? 
Browser extensions, the VR browser extensions. <laughs> it's yours. All right, this is looking no. good. All right, should we do one more item for our first combo? Yes. Home automation, okay, so we are going to come up with the combination that's gonna include VR, browser extensions, and home automation. So since we're starting in home automation, Suze, you wanna kick us oh off? My <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh man, don't listen to that episode, it's weird. Uh, okay, so we have a browser extension, we have VR, and we have home automation. Ooh, I don't wanna be super boring and go with like the normal things. So what if, you could use a browser extension uh, to randomly put somebody into your house in VR, and then uh, you end up like being able to control all the lights uh, and the air conditioning and everything. So they have the VR on, but then there are all these spooky things happening around them, but because they have the VR on, they don't really understand what's going on. And so they have to do an escape the room in VR, <laughs> and you're using the browser um, extension remotely in order to kind of like tweak what's happening in their world. And so you can keep like tricking them as they're trying to escape. That's the best I have, so. Anyone want to jump on that and go further? <laughs> I had one idea just, but it only has two out of the three because that was pretty hard. I'm impressed that you were able to combine those three. It's very hard yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on stage. So for the browser extension and for VR, what I was thinking was there was this old um, program I installed when I was a kid that um, was sort of like supposed to make your, your Windows desktop into like a virtual world. So you could walk around like a 3D game and all of your programs on your computer were um, like pictures on the wall in a, in a house. And you could, um, you could like put up a web page as a picture on a wall and stuff like that. So it would be cool if, the, if there was a browser extension that let you uh, sort of maybe turn a website into a VR world somehow. So it could figure out what to do with all the elements and just arrange them physically around you. You could have like spe special ways of showing each uh, type of site. So maybe for like a Reddit page, it would have a certain way of laying it out for you or you could walk around physically and look at all the posts uh, down like a big hallway or something. I don't know if that's actually useful, but. <laughs> we have that on HoloLens now. So okay. like people actually do have their operating system as like a house. So I feel like you're on the right track. Cool. It's interesting. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say to build on that kind of, and to build on on yours, Suze, uh, maybe a uh, like a browser extension. When I think of browser extension, I think of an ad blocker because that's the main one that I install. <laughs> uh, so maybe an ad blocker that has to put you into a virtual reality, uh, maybe an augmented reality world where you have to. Uh, destroy the ads <laughs> in the browser yourself. So every time you go in, you want to just look at you know, uh, a news article, you have to first destroy all of the ads in there. But you have to do it before the lights in your house change colors. <laughs> uh, in different ways. I thought you were going into more of a capture. You know how with the, the Google captures, you have yeah. to click on the cars. It's oh, like you get, better. you get thrown into a world and you're like, you have to like point at the painting of the Mona Lisa yes. or something. It's so much better. Pass the Turing test. Well, and as you do this, your lights are getting dimmer and dimmer. So until you get it, like it's uh, getting darker and darker around you and you've got. I've done something like that before where I, I had like a chatbot and the more you interacted with it, it would actually start turning lights off in your room and it would also have like props lighting up and things like that. So I just wanted to do an extension of that really. <laughs> I like your idea the best, I think. All right, next combination. Anyone want to throw out something new? Don't make it so hard, that one was hard. Maybe we'll stick with two this time. <laughs> Anyone out there? What's a, a cool library you've either learned about recently, you've been playing with, something like that? Yeah? Cryptocurrency mining. 
Oh, God. All right. <laughs> JavaScript cryptocurrency mining. That's our starter. Anything, something else to combine it with? Yes. <laughs> All right. So cryptocurrency mining and GraphQL. Uh, let's throw this one over to Nick. Oh, man. <laughs> um, what's GraphQL? Uh, so I don't know. No? Anyone want, else want to pick it up? You could, for people who don't understand, like, ledges and stuff with, like, after you've actually mined the Bitcoins, you could put like a GraphQL interface in front of it and then they could just query it, which is the most boring scenario ever. But I feel like it's easier than having to, yeah, you could figure it out with all the local caches somehow. Pretty sure there's a startup actually doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's like GraphQL, uh, a way of accessing random blockchains over GraphQL or something. I can't tell if yeah. you're being serious or not. I'm being serious. Okay. <laughs> I know, it's hard to tell. <laughs> that would actually be interesting because you've got all of these different blockchain pieces now and cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. and instead of saying, okay, we're going to go through an exchange to do that, you say, oh, well, I'm just going to throw a GraphQL server on top of it. You know, mm -hmm. Apollo handles that, right? <laughs> all right. We do Next, one more? Uh, let's do one more, one more, well, maybe two more. We probably have time for two more combinations. Uh, anyone else want to throw out some interesting, cool libraries you're playing with? Or browser APIs. Or browser APIs. Mocha? Okay. All right, testing framework. Mocha? Yep. All right, we have an expert on that somewhere in the house. Yes? Mocha and D3. <laughs> oh, that one, that's, that's pretty fun. Who wants mm -hmm. to tackle that? I can try. Yeah? I think it would be cool if, if you run an NPM test on your own library, and then that triggers an NPM test on all of your dependencies, and then on its mm. dependencies, dependencies, and then you can actually see how many tests and stuff in D3. I think that would look really cool, just to see like, just overall like, how much stuff is actually covered. Is, is the idea behind that like, if you're going to publish a new, if you're about to publish a new version of a package, you can see um, all the packages that depend on yours. You can run their tests to see if if it's going to break them, and then if so, you you. You'd have to like make it a major version. Oh, is that the idea? Or? That's, that's what it sounded like. When I was just doing it for art. Oh, okay. Like, my stuff never has a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted it to look cool. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I've, uh, I've thought about this. I'm sure there's some something on NPM that does it, but like it'd be so cool to know like if you're about to make this like a minor or a patch version, and then you're like, well, wait a minute, um, the tests of one of the people depending on this would actually break. So let me like go and see exactly what broke and see, oh, are they using like an undocumented thing? Do I actually care that, that it's breaking? Or do I, or is that, whoa, it's actually an edge case I didn't think about. Maybe I should make it a major version. Um, I know that Node does that, right? So Node has oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like that list of packages, including ones with native modules and mm -hmm. things like that. And they sort of have that test suite. So you're saying being able to have one for your individual for your library. your own library, yeah. I already feel enough pressure with the stuff that I released. <laughs> you don't want more? Yeah, yeah but it's good to know. I think that's not a bad idea. But like the, the visualizing it with the tree thing would be cool. Yeah. NPM has started doing some of that tree stuff for security, though it's going the other way. It's saying, what do I depend on? And, yeah, that's true. You know, traversing down the, you know, each of those packages and understanding are there security vulnerabilities and things like that. This would be kind of inverting that and saying, everything that depends on my library Let's go and run all of their tests with this. You'd need a, a massive server farm, yeah. essentially. You'd like kick everything off. OK, go run on AWS for three hours. Come back and show me pretty graphs. Any other 
JavaScript libraries you want to, th I want to throw one out uh, that I've been, we talked about this once on an episode and I just want to pit you two off on combining web USB with web torrents because I think there's some really <laughs> interesting things we could do there, uh, particularly getting around the setup problem and how do we make this something that's truly distributed or other fun stuff. Do you have any ideas? I think it would be cool to use torrents to manage firmware versions of hardware, and then you can basically just download your own like flavor or distribution for your hardware from WebTorrent, but then that goes straight through to WebUSB to update it on the spot. Huh. I thought that would be cool. Yeah. I, my first reaction to, to this combination is because I always there's always people who who, who um, ask me like could I use WebTorrent for this crazy use case and I'm like why would that be better than just doing it over HTTP other than the cool <laughs> factor like uh, and oftentimes the answer is just like you know keep it simple like you're already gonna have so many problems like just making this work like reliably like don't add another like layer of, of technology <laughs> so that's my first reaction but but this sounds really cool too like just for the cool factor of it. Uh, and I don't know, there's probably other, other things we're not thinking of too. So there's firmware distribution that's going one way. The other way I was thinking of is uh, you were telling us when we talked about it on the previous episode how with web torrents you actually need a sort of centralized linking mechanism of mm, some sort, yeah. whereas with uh, traditional torrents you don't. You can be completely distributed. And so I was imagining a web torrents website that combines with some sort of, you know, uh, cell phone linked USB dongle, essentially, mm. where you just plug this thing in, it knows how to talk to it via web USB, does a distributed setup, and then pat uses that to set up your web torrents credentials, at that's, which point you could unplug the dongle and go that's off. That's way tunnel. better than what I came up with. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that might be why I introduced I the topic. I think I'm still, because like my job is enterprise IoT, so I'm like firmware and security updates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would you trust a torrented security update? Actually, that's actually one place where it does pretty well because a torrent, if you know the hash, of the, you need to know the hash, it, it verifies the content. So mm -hmm. if even a single bit is changed, the hash won't verify. Um, and then if a peer and if a peer sends you like bad data, you just stop talking to that peer. So yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. The only hard part is figuring out what the hash is that you want to um, trust. Right? <laughs> but this is the same problem with like all all things. Like if you think about like how do you know what a URL, which URL to go to to trust is you, you go to Google and you type in something and then it tells you the URL. So you have the same sort of like problem of like how do I even discover what link to trust? And I'm assuming for a firmware thing you'd probably have some trusted way of getting that um, that update hash to the device. Yeah, we have a new platform that validates all of that all the way down. It doesn't do it with torrents though, which just right. makes me, but it, it would be really cool to do that because you know, a lot of IoT now is done on the edge, and so being able to have something like torrents instead of like traditional, like always on kind of connect connectivity would be really cool. Mm. Yeah, actually, I just thought of something. The 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 one the one case where BitTorrent is used today, um, uh, like really like a really uh, enterprisey use case, is for doing um, updates to servers. Where like for example, Facebook does this, where anytime they're pushing out a new uh, version of their uh, web app, the um, it's like a compiled binary, I think. It's because they use this like PHP fork thing that compiles to a, to a binary, and then they need to push it out to like a thousand servers. And if the build server had to like send a thousand copies of it out, it would it would um, take a while to do the deploy. Exactly. So they use torrents that way. Like once a couple servers get it, they can give it to the next servers, and it fans out. Yeah. Um, so like for devices, that actually sounds perfect. You don't want to have like a thousand random devices out there in the field all like getting the data from a single server. 
and that one I just have them share with each other. Yeah, and that's what happens right now with a lot of like enterprise IoT stuff, and it's really painful because you can have devices that will chime out or something like that, then they have to ask the server again. Uh, and so this actually alleviates that and means that you don't have to set like several days timeouts on just one job that you're running for like 10,000 devices. So that's why the first thing I thought of was that, just because, uh -huh. again, with limited connectivity, being able to extend that with the torrents is a really cool idea. Maybe not that useless after all. <laughs> so anyone looking for a business idea out there, it sounds like uh, web torrents, firmware updates. <laughs> there you go. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative correction to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. section I wanted to do was actually to talk about, do kind of a meta session, talking about community and the JavaScript community in particular, the role of conferences, and a little bit about what we're doing well, because I think there's a lot of things we're doing well, but I thought it would also be really interesting to pull the audience and, and pull the panel about where do we still have to grow? What are we falling down on when it comes to growing our community and making it more inviting and accepting, but also in terms of how we're spreading knowledge and that sort of thing. So um, I don't have a particular place to start that, except maybe JSConf. I noticed, one thing I noticed immediately coming here to JSConf is the opening statement was the code of conduct, which I think is a really positive thing in our industry that we're uh, focusing on everyone's experience, not just the loudest and sort of more traditionally supported experiences. Um, other things y'all have noticed about JSConf so far? Uh, I really like the accessibility of things. I like the fact that, you know, we, we had young Nathan in one of the first talks this morning, and it was delightful to be able to actually have people still attend talks as parents. I think that's always been a thing that's run right through JSConf since the very first um, event that was run. I didn't even go to the first JSConf, but, you know, part of the appeal was just hearing about how it does allow people to attend who normally wouldn't have the means to be able to, and I think that's really good. I think that we have a lot of work to do to be able to take those kind of things back to our local meetups. So I think for something like a conference, it can feel like worth it to do because you know there's a, it's high stakes. But I think that with things like meetups, you know. Um, Meetups are still struggling to have the budget to pay for things like captions. Um, Meetups are still struggling to deal with parents being able to attend something after hours, which is just not always possible. And even weekends can be quite difficult depending on whether there's soccer practice and things like that. So I think that 
the idea of DSConf was to bring a lot of those affordances and ideas and like improvements in, in inclusion back to our local chapters, but outside of conferences, I'm still not seeing it at a lot of meetups, and that's something I'd like to see change. I'd like to see us somehow figure out how we can um, come up with like clever ways to be able to budget for that stuff even, because I know it's a, it's a money issue as well. Nick, you've run a conference as well. What is your experience on handling that side of things? Uh, it's very important to take it seriously from the beginning and to make sure that uh, everything that you do is clear and, and the way that you're going to um, handle any scenarios that come up is clear. Uh, we've had scenarios come up at the conferences that I've run and, and other events that I've run. And in some cases, we didn't publicize them because the, the people who reported them wished that they they remain, they didn't want to make it a big deal, but they wanted to let us know that things were happening so that we would know what to do going forward. Uh, in other cases, we've had to write messages uh, on mailing lists to 1,500 people and let them know something happened, this kind of, a, this kind of um, uh, behavior is inappropriate and we can't have that at our meetups. And we just have to make sure that uh, it's important that people know who they can go to uh, and that they will be taken seriously in all cases. One, one thing, this is kind of different than, uh, than what you two said, but just I was thinking back to when I first got involved in the JavaScript community, and one, one big thing that I uh, experienced was just a fear of going up to the speakers and the big names in the community, and just I was afraid to like, um, have them figure out maybe that I'm, I, don't, I don't know something or that I'm, uh, maybe I'm, they'll think I'm stupid if I ask a qu certain question or something like that. And so it actually took me going to a couple conferences before I felt like I could actually walk up to people and talk to them. Um, so I don't know, yeah, I, don't, I, think, I think one thing that, we'll see actually how it goes tomorrow. I've never been to JSConf before, but like the idea of a whole day between the talks where people just get to hang out seems pretty, pretty, like a pretty good way to uh, make it less intimidating to come up to speakers and you know, just realize, like, until I actually came up to speakers and talked to them, I, I had this sort of unhealthy like, hero worship around it, and I, you know, I thought, oh, this person's like, on another level, and I'm never going to be like them, and I can't, you know, and I, and I um, and yeah, that, that's just really not, not realistic. What really, what the truth, what, the truth was that these people just had been working uh, for a while in this area, and they just got really good over time, and I could do exactly the same thing. And, and so um, eventually, uh, eventually, like, you know, talk to them, hang out with them, realize, oh, cool, like, I can, I can be one of them, and uh, I don't know, yeah. So, having having a like less pressure and more uh, free time, I think, is good for that. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. I think that's a really good point. I definitely think that we have a hero worship problem just in the JavaScript community in general, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because. It goes both ways. You're either put on a pedestal so people are super entitled and they expect so many things of you when you're just like one human and you're fallible and like, you know, you have your own personal life that you're trying to also get on with, but you're just being constantly barraged by expectations. Um, but there's also, yeah, that feeling of exclusivity. It's like, well, I can't talk to them because they're author of X like library or something, but it's just not how most people want to be seen, I'm sure for the big sort of JavaScript celebrities, it's just not really a healthy attitude. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I think that these conferences obviously help with this because you, you get to speak to them in real life and then you realize that they're just a person. But um, I think that we can do better in the community at large with this kind of stuff, especially when it comes to the Twitter kind of conversations and dramas and things like that. Yeah, having this face-to-face -face interaction with someone who you, um you know of very well through their work or through Twitter or, or whatever. Actually being able to like 
see them as a person instead of just a voice on Twitter or, <laughs> or in GitHub comments is, uh, mm -hmm. is very enlightening and, and very good. By the way, all three of these panelists are speakers, and they just basically invited you to come talk to them. <laughs> That's kind of like, so I'm really, like, I'm much more socially anxious than people give me credit for, and like, <laughs> I've hung out with these guys, so they know that I'm a freaking weirdo, but like, for me, public speaking gave me a lazy way out, because if I give a talk, then someone has a jumping off point to like, start a conversation with me, whereas I used to be that person that would come into a circle already talking, and then just after five minutes walk away, because I just didn't know how to get in, and mm -hmm. so that's definitely solved a problem for me now. It's a huge uh, life hack. Yeah. If, you, if you give a talk, then all of the people who are interested in whatever you're interested in will come and find you afterwards. And you have to do way less work. Self-selecting. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing is true at meetups, but the pressure's even lower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Definite life hack. Anyone out in the audience have a topic area around conferences and community you want to ask the panel about or have us talk about? Yeah? How are speakers selected? Ah, That's great a secret question. sauce that you can't discuss. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's, it, it's a big process. Uh, we usually, it, we vary how we do it, but we have, uh, for the conference that I run, the Nebraska JavaScript Conference, um, there's eight organizers total, and we all, we'll put out the CFP, and then we will all come up with a list of speakers that we really want to invite to speak, and then we'll discuss those and find uh, common ones and then try and actually reach out to them and invite them to speak. But the last two uh, conferences, we've actually not invited any speakers and chosen completely from the CFP. And the process that we go through for that is, uh, it kind of varies from person to person, but for the most part, we all go through the list in a blind way where we're just looking at the talk title and the description, trying to understand what pieces, uh, what the the intention of the 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 uh, conference talk will be, and then trying to weigh that against other talks that are in similar categories. So like if you're talking about React or you're talking about accessibility, um, we kind of rank those individually on those different pieces. Like we, we, we want to make sure that we cover accessibility and React and that, but we don't want to have four React talks and four accessibility talks. We want to have a good combination of everything. Uh, and it's especially hard for us because we're a single track conference, so we need to make sure that we have interesting enough topics that will keep everyone's attention for the entire conference and not completely isolate the Angular developers who are sitting here learning about React all day. Uh, so we, we try and be a little more generic when it comes to frameworks like that. But we'll come together and we'll, we'll comprise a list and then we will talk about that. We'll, we'll all get together physically and discuss what talks we, should, we think should be in there and why and then um, we'll go through and we wanna make sure that we have uh, a good diversity of speakers as well, so we don't want to just end up with uh, you know, nine white men. That would not be a very good conference. We want to make sure that we have diversity of, of talk ideas and diversity of um, speakers as well. And so we weigh all of that um, and then come out with a, a list that everyone agrees on and we go invite from there. Which is so hard, yes. that whole process. It is, it's very hard. Uh, just for those who have never contributed to one of those, a CFP is a call for proposals, yes. yep. and it typically will state something about the kind of topic area that the conference is open to, a range of topic areas. It'll often ask you to fill out you know, things like title, uh, 
abstract, who this might be good for, what level of experience it's needed, and then some stuff about yourself as a bio and things like that. So when Nick is saying CFP, you look at the things, that's what that means. Is those, you, know, you go and you fill out a form online about what it is you want to speak on and who you are. So a pro tip also is um, apply to like a lot of talks. You're going to get rejected from like 80%. Don't feel bad. It's normal. Um, just keep applying. Um, and like like uh, Nick was saying, there's so many people applying, and you know you might have submitted like a talk on a specific topic, and there was like five others, so they picked one of the other ones. You can also another tip is um, you can submit a proposal for a talk that you've never given before, one that you haven't made yet. Just write up the proposal and submit it, and then if you get accepted, then you can go and make the talk. Conference-driven development. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I've done that before with talks where like I'm planning to demo something, and actually the code for it doesn't even exist yet. But if I know that I got into the talk, I'm like, okay, all right, well, the next like, two weeks, I guess I'm working on this. <laughs> better finish it. Um, it's totally fine uh, to do that as well. I've heard of other conferences that will open up the CFP and like, let everyone see who has submitted talks and then let the audience vote on that. We haven't tried that yet. I think it'd be an interesting... Uh, experiment, but I'm not sure how well it would go for, for a conference as small as mine. Yeah, you might have an amazing title and description and you made it into the shortlist and then, you know, when it came to trying to just arrange something with enough variety, yours fell out, but it doesn't mean at all that there was anything wrong with your proposal. Like, for all you know, like, you could have actually been just that last one that they had to cut, and you shouldn't take the rejection as it was terrible and everyone hated it. Mm -hmm. I know that some, um, you know, some conference organizers don't necessarily have time to give you feedback. Some will be responsive if you reach out, and some will actually say to you, no, you, you were, like, so close to getting in, we just couldn't fit yours anywhere and it didn't make sense. So, you know, we really want you to either apply again next year or they'll even maybe recommend you to other conferences because they really wanted to see that talk come out. And, and to that point, uh, for NEJSConf, for this last one that happened last month, we got 175 CFP submissions. We can pick nine talks. Yeah. So it is such a hard thing to do, but we have to reject 166 talks, which is terrible. It's gut-wrenching, because like, you get so excited about some of them, and you're like, ah, wanted to see that. Different conferences have different balances in terms of how they will pull in speakers. Uh, so some conferences will do only invited speakers. They don't even do a CFP. Uh, some will balance. I think you know, JSConf, the AMP track, I believe, was all outreach, and the B track was all CFP-driven. Um, uh, it's, it's first come, first serve. First come, first serve. Wait, really? I applied. I applied for my talk, and I'm on the Amtrak. Okay, so I'm misinformed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> different folks will do different balances of that. It's kind of the high level um, on that. Um, I know I, at one point, was a track chair for a conference that only did invited speakers. They didn't do any CFP and things like that. Um, and then there are conferences that'll slot out either a track or a set of talks within a track that they'll say, this is only for new speakers. So if you've never spoken at a conference, you know, apply and let us know. Um, so there's all sorts of different balances there. Um, so if you can't find the CFP for a conference that you want to speak at, they may not do it. Um, also be looking out six to 12 months, because mm -hmm. these things fill up way in advance. One, one crazy life hack, uh, if, you, uh, if you want to live a very uh, unique life, you can, um, you can I, I've, I know people who apply to so many conferences, and uh, they've gotten pretty good at giving talks, and they'll actually have like talks lined up like every week pretty much for the entire year and they use the 
you know, because once you, once you get into a conference, the conference usually pays for your flight to the conference, and then a couple of days of hotel, and then flight back to home. But you can actually set it up so that you can fly to the conference and then fly out to wherever you want to go next, and then have the next conference fly you to there. And so this, this guy actually just travels like all year round, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a cool lifestyle. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think Substack was pretty yeah, nomadic for a while. That's yeah, who you're talking that's about? That's who I'm talking yeah. about, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would a, love seeing him popping up all over the world. It was great. Yeah, pretty nice. Yes. Ooh. How do you decide when and where to host a conference? Is that the? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's pretty simple for for me. It's the Nebraska JS conference, so we just hosted in Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but how do you pick your venue? <laughs> we, we actually pick a, a different venue every single time. We we've done it four times and have had a different venue every time, um, and we've had different themes. The first one was at a zoo, and so we had a, a zoo theme. We had special guest speakers, which were a snake and a hedgehog that you could come in and pet. Um, and then this last one we had at uh, the Performing Arts Center in downtown Omaha, that, and we had a space theme. So it kind of didn't match, but we were, we were playing with it and had a lot of fun. Um, we just kind of go and figure out what venues we can fit in and what their what their rates are like and uh, the kind of experience that we can deliver because that's the most important thing. Yeah, there's a lot that goes in that decision. There's like budget, there's how many people can we fit, there is can they cater for people's dietary requirements? Yep. Do they, are they ADA compliant so that um, people, you know, so that there's not just stairs, there's elevators and things like that. A lot of that can kind of come down to what kind of audience you're trying to attract as well. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, that, that's exactly where I was going with that, too. And I couldn't imagine doing it at a scale like JSConf. <laughs> this seems so much, so, so crazy compared to the smaller conferences, but uh, it's really magical. Other questions folks have out there about conferences or community meetup? I think we have multiple folks on stage who've run meetup groups. Is there a question over there? Yes. How do you do talk prep? Ah, speakers. What's that? <laughs> the night before. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> I didn't sleep much last night. <laughs> I've, I've done a range of things, everything from uh, actually preparing way ahead to I'm literally tweaking my slides right before I go on stage. Um, the best way to improve your speaking is to videotape yourself and force yourself to watch it. Mm -hmm. Gosh, is it painful. Like you will probably never do anything more painful in your life than watching yourself speak, but you will learn more about what you do that you don't like and how to fix it than anything else you ever do. Um, so if you, if you can do it, uh, tape yourself speaking, take notes about what you didn't like or didn't like, do it again, do it again, do it again. The best talks I've ever given, I taped myself giving and watched it 20 or 30 times before I gave it for real. Um, and those turned out to be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And then the ones where I do it last minute are much more hit or miss. I've done that um, not through explicit practice because I'm not as disciplined as you, but uh, through I just... I only do that sometimes. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> but like if you, if you um, end up giving the same talk a couple times, which I, was, I never used to want to do because it seemed like, oh, I shouldn't do this, but apparently it's 
pretty normal when people people you know give a talk a couple times. Usually, like the third or fourth time you you do, uh, and it can be at a meetup or whatever, or you know to your to your friends, you know, at, or you know at your company or whatever, like however many you know venues you do. But, it, but once you get to like the third or fourth time, at least for me, um, it gets way smoother, and you uh, you know like exactly what lines are going to have are going to cause a laugh and when to pause, <laughs> and like and by the end you can sort of feel like they're eating out of your hands in a way. That I, it's, it's really a magical feeling when it's like, I'm going to say this thing, and they're going to laugh. And then you like, you're like, OK, and then, then you say it, and then they laugh. And you're like, ah, Although I that, have the power. That Best does experience. break down when you go to different countries, though. And it's like, oh, this is like an American slapstick joke. And it felt completely flat with like some other country that just that's not their sense of humor culturally. So yeah, but if you're traveling around to like places where the communities are very similar, that can be very relieving to know, OK, my jokes are actually funny. It's going to go OK next time. This I, is a little self-serving as a meetup organizer, but your meetups want to hear from you. So uh, <laughs> give those talks, practice them at your local meetups. That's a good way. And the bar to uh, speaking at a meetup is down here. Yes. You can roll over that bar. You don't have to even stand up to get over that bar, because meetups are always looking for speakers. Yes. And they're a forgiving audience because the bar is down here and everybody knows they could be on that stage next time. Mm -hmm. um, I can share a little bit about like the actual prep prep though, like because I know you shared it where you rehearse and everything. I usually start with like the message that I want the audience to walk away with and then I work backwards from there. And so usually the intro is pretty straightforward where it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm obviously going to be introducing my topic, but I need to set the agenda of like what I'm going to be talking about. And I'm not going to know that agenda up front because I'm sort of working backwards from there. So usually the intro comes last for me. The, um, the message is written out for me in my notes. And then I sort of try to come up with like an outline of high level points that work backwards from there. And then it kind of fleshes out. Um, and I'll admit, I have probably, if I've got a couple of months to prepare, I won't work on the talk for three weeks after that because every shower that I have, I have the shower thoughts and then I'll start coming up with those kind of key takeaway <coughs> lines or those quote-worthy sort of things. Um, and that's where the talk sort of starts trickling into my brain. And from there, I'm just meticulous about making sure that I'm done a couple of days in advance and things like that. Because it's going to be those couple of days leading up to the conference that all of a sudden you're going to have these like flashes of inspiration. And if your slides are complete, you can just go in and adjust them and then re-rehearse it and see if that works. So for me, being on a schedule helps me. I know that doesn't work for every talk. There's been one talk that I've done super last minute, and it worked out OK, but I'm not proud of that. And so for me, just being over-prepared can sometimes really just make you feel like you know, you, you should be there sometimes, especially if you're feeling nervous about it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed, and I had a really interesting conversation with Darren Nix, the group manager at Indeed Assessments. And Darren is running a remote first team that operates like a startup inside Indeed. And you know Indeed, it's a huge company, lots of resources, solving big problems, lots of big data, and Darren's team is hiring. Take a listen. Darren, tell me about the big picture problem you're solving at Indeed Assessments. What our team does is we build tools so job seekers can show off their knowledge, skills, and abilities when they're trying to get a job way better than a resume can. And that lets employers find uh, great hires a lot quicker too and makes the process better for everybody. So you're running a remote first team, 
looking to hire pretty aggressively Java engineers, front-end React engineers, Ruby on Rails engineers, UX designers, business intelligence, and you operate Indeed assessments like a startup that lives inside Indeed. Tell me more. Because we're basically a startup within Indeed, we get to hire folks all around the country, even if they're not in Austin or San Francisco or Seattle. And that means we can hire really great engineers who want to be able to work from their home city, work on really big problems, but solve those problems in a startup-y way. You know, we host our code on GitHub, or Rails and Redis, we use Postgres and React, and we're push on green. So we deploy six times a day. So I've seen charts that say like, hey, we deployed 13 times this week. And I'm like, haha, we deployed like 78 times because we like to go fast. And so what we're doing here at Indeed is finding ways to be able to continue to be startup-y, but solve really big problems and help hundreds of millions of people get jobs. So if helping out your fellow engineers get jobs sounds like an exciting problem and you like working on startup-y tools at a really big scale, send us a note, reach out. I actually interview every single person who comes to join our team. So I'll be meeting with you and I look forward to hearing from you. So if you're looking to join a remote first team working on really big problems that will literally impact hundreds of millions of people, head to indeed.job slash changelog to learn more and take that first step. Probably have time for one more question. Yes. <clears throat> So the question is, what methodologies do we have experience with or recommend for ensuring a diversity of speaker lineups? How do we fight our own biases? Anyone want to start that? I mean, I can start one, which is don't be the only decision maker. Uh, if you are, for example, a member of a, member of a privileged community, you're a white man or something like that, make sure that you engage people from the communities that you would like to be involved. You know, and say, hey, I know that I have these biases. I want to overcome them. Would you be interested in helping? And don't demand help because you know, a lot of times we expect sort of free labor from folks, but invite them into that process and say, you know what, like, I want a diverse community. Will you co-organize this with me? Would you be willing to you know, help make that happen? And if they say no, respect that because a lot of, it's a lot of work, but bring other people into your process. Yeah, I would agree. Just having as many people as possible uh, and as diverse of a, of a group of uh, decision makers as possible as well to make sure that you, you try and cover every base and make sure that, that uh, the best interests of the conference are, are what are put first. So I don't organize conferences, but I do organize a lot of workshops. And a lot of the time I'm responsible for the advertising material or like just the information website or the registration or whatever. And I've run into this recently where, I mean, I realize that in robotics especially I'm a minority, <laughs> but you know, I don't feel intimidated about that subject material. Well, we hope not, because I'm usually leading the workshop, but I try and think of like, try and think of the people that would be intimidated, and then I think, okay, so like, how can you reverse that intimidation? So for me, it's about reaching people who look at a topic and say, that's interesting to me, but I don't feel like I belong, and then how can you almost like turn the tables on it? So with robotics, it seems like, 
really serious and like really complicated and lots of bits and stuff. So I tend to just like simplify the communication about the, the actual workshop. Sometimes I'll actually use like super friendly cartoon illustrations and things like that just to show like, no, this is actually friendly. If you come, you're not gonna be laughed at because you don't know anything and things like that. And so sometimes I just try and get that out in the messaging even though you've already reached out to communities that you're um, you know, afraid that are not gonna wanna come, you reach out to them first, but you also, if you're sending them that material, they're gonna use that to judge whether they actually wanna turn up or not as well. And so getting that messaging correct when they actually go to find information is key to getting people to even show up in the first place. One other thing is to be very upfront about things like code of conduct, things like if you're bringing speakers in, be upfront about how much you, and ideally all, that you can cover for them. Uh, because a lot of times folks coming from less traditional backgrounds can't afford to fly out to your conference to speak there. So, and if you don't say upfront, hey, we pay you know, travel and board for speakers, they may never apply because they don't know if they can do it. And it's a, it's a pretty big barrier to reach out and say, hey, do you guys fund this or not? Uh, so being upfront about your code of conduct, about the fact that you actually care about diversity and that you will provide you know, travel or room or whatever it is that you can actually afford. And uh, you know, realistically, not every conference can afford to do extensive childcare as much as I really wish they would because that is a diversity area. But be upfront about what you can do and what you are doing um, so that folks don't have to ask and they don't have to second guess, like, could I actually do this if they accepted me? I think overcoming your biases in that way to know to do that stuff is probably the most difficult part. And so just asking yourself constant questions like, who are all the people that aren't like me? How, you know, what are the different scenarios? Think about all of your friends. Think about people who you've met in your life and all of their different circumstances and try to always question the fact that your own ideal is the norm for you, and that, but that's only for you individually. And so people come from all walks of life and they're just not gonna be anything like you at all. I think that's still a difficult thing, but asking, constantly questioning every assumption you make about the event, such as food, or why do we have to have the food this way? What if we had it this way? Those questions will actually start smoking out all of those biases as well, which can be really helpful. All right, so we need to wrap up because two of our illustrious panelists are actually speaking in the next slot. Uh, so, I mean, showdown. If you want to listen to Faraz talk about the most annoying website in the world, it'll be right here. Nick, will, you'll be talking about TypeScript, is mm -hmm. that right? Uh, over in the B track. So, one or the other of them, you'll get to hear more from them, but you do have to decide. Uh, other things, bookkeeping. If you want one of these awesome JS, I, I looked down and it got loud. If you want one of these awesome JS party shirts, uh, we do have some for giveaway. We have uh, lady sizes. There are lady sizes and men's sizes. This took me a while this morning to figure out when I was trying to figure out why my shirt wouldn't fit. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the way that you get one is you come, I'm gonna be sitting over outside of track B and give me a few minutes after this to actually try to get some lunch. But for the next hour and a half, first come, first serve basis, you come and show me that you've subscribed to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you can show me on your phone, you can show me on your laptop, wherever it is that you manage your podcast. But if you subscribe to JS Party, uh, you can find it, uh, can we put the slide up real quick, the changelog.com slash JS Party. Uh, there is a list of all the different, your favorite ways to subscribe. So if you're an Apple user, or an Android user, or what have you. Um, you come and show me that you've subscribed, and as long as we have t-shirt supplies in your size, you can have one. Um, 
They're so soft. They are ridiculously <laughs> Yeah, soft. they're really nice. Um, nice. Other than that, any other bookkeeping? Uh, if you enjoyed this, and even if you don't want to get a t-shirt, you can still subscribe. Uh, episodes typically come out Friday. This episode should come out this Friday, knock on wood. Uh, we generally record and broadcast live on Thursday mornings at uh, 10 o'clock Pacific time. I guess it's not morning if you're on the East Coast, but uh, <laughs> on Thursdays, 10 Pacific, 1 Eastern. You can come join us. There's a Slack channel. You can chime in. We typically do include uh, commentary and feedback from the folks who are listening live, uh, so you can have your voice heard as well. Yeah, some people write raps, and then sometimes we rap them. Yeah, we, yeah, we, <laughs> have, we have been known to rap things. I think the, the most amazing feedback loop I ever saw was I did a rap for somebody, and then somebody in the channel or who was live listening hand wrote it in calligraphy and posted it in the channel, so we had this like amazing artistic uh, representation of this really dumb nerd rap that I had done. Yeah, I think you rapped, you rapped about me. Yeah, I was rapping about <laughs> Frost, and I don't know. It, it was, was amazing. Yeah. Amazing feedback. It's a cool uh, community. But we talk about all kinds of stuff, too. So, like, I think um, I'm doing a, uh, hosting a, sh a show uh, about peer-to-peer, -peer, like the distributed web, in, uh, in, I guess it's on the 6th. And then, like, I don't know, the topics are always different. It's, like, always a new random thing, but it's always related to JavaScript, so it's really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of JS Party. Again, huge thanks to Derek and the organizers of JS Conf and Gage, who sponsored our travel fund. JS Party records live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelog.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this episode with a friend and rate, review, or recommend us wherever you get your podcasts. Our bandwidth, as always, is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. The beats are by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes of this show and more at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.